It's Home Court Press Utah Jazz Talk Weekly Wednesday with Brian Priest and McCade Pearson. Today on Home Court Press, McCade and I take a look at the play-in tournament, discussing the pros and cons of the additional six games. And with the end of the regular season, we're obligated to hand out our individual awards for 2021, which jazz men take home hardware. We also talk about the home court advantage with the Jazz by allowing 13,000 people in Vivid Arena to begin round one. Is 70% capacity too much, or did the Jazz get a big boost from the hometown crowd? But first, the Jazz finished with the best record in the league this year. With a full week to rest and recuperate, how does not knowing their first round opponent until late Friday night impact Quinn Snyder's game planning? Stay tuned as all that and more is coming up next on Home Court Press, Utah Jazz Talk, weekly Wednesday. Welcome into Home Court Press, Utah Jazz Talk, weekly Wednesday. This is your host, Brian Priest, joined as always by McCade Pearson. And McCade, big news for us this week. We actually met for the third time in, a, what, a year and a half of recording now? We, we have met each other three times. We went and played some golf yesterday. Yes, sir. No, golf's always a fun thing to do. And we got out and we had a great time with a couple other members of Jazz Twitter. And it was a beautiful day yesterday morning. It's good to see you. You know, got to give a shout out to SLC Bass and at Dinwoody6. We we all went out golfing at Forestdale yesterday. Had a great time walking nine holes, getting some jazz conversation in. And uh, hey, if anybody's interested, we're always looking for some golfing partners. Myself, personally, I'm trying to golf and walk nine holes at least once a week all summer long. So, Jump in my DMs. Let's schedule something. Should be a good time. But I think it's time we talk about jazz basketball, McCade. We haven't gotten together since, what was it, the Friday night game after they beat OKC. We haven't talked about the jazz. What were your thoughts on how the regular season finished? The jazz win the last two games. Obviously, they clinched the one seed. Home court advantage throughout the playoffs. What about the rest of the league where we saw some tanking? We saw the Clippers go head-to-head with the all-time GOAT tanking team in OKC and actually lose to OKC. They lost to the Rockets as well, two of the worst teams in basketball. The Nuggets were dropping games. They decided not to play anybody against the Blazers. What are your overall thoughts about that end of the season, tanking, throwing games, trying to game the system for seeding? Really, the Clippers the only team that went out of their way to do that, and I'm not sure why they did. I don't know if they really care that much to play the Jazz instead of the Suns in the second round, theoretically, on paper. You can make the argument to dodge the Lakers in the second round, but, I mean, the Lakers are one game away tonight from dropping to eight themselves, and then you have to play the guaranteed winner of the Lakers-Jazz in the second round if you get past Dallas. So I'm not sure what their exact reasoning was there or if they legitimately just rested players and lost the games. But regardless, we do have the Clippers on our side of the bracket, which isn't the most ideal route, but you're going to have to beat good teams to win the championship anyway, and so you just got to buckle down and take care of yourself, and that's what the Jazz did when they got the number one seed. If somebody wants to win the championship outside of the Utah Jazz, they need to or have somebody else for them beat Utah in Utah. If the Jazz go 16-0 at home over the next couple months, they will win the NBA championship, and that's what you play for all regular season long, and that's what the Jazz accomplished this weekend with a, I'll say, great win in Sacramento. It wasn't a perfect game by any means. You're the one seed, and you just got to focus on yourself at this point. 
Okay, so now the Jazz have a full week to rest before Game 1. The league has announced it's going to be on Sunday. They still haven't released a playoff schedule. We don't know what time the Jazz are going to be playing on Sunday. I think that it's probably a safe bet, especially if the Lakers win today against the Warriors, that the Lakers are probably going to be prime time on Sunday night. So the Jazz will probably be sometime Sunday afternoon. But right now, with that, that week of rest, they obviously have a great opportunity to rest. They get some treatment, get into the practice facility. They might even practice for two or three days, which would be something that they haven't been able to do all season long. But the drawback right now with the play-in tournament is that the Jazz don't actually know their playoff opponent. They won't know who they're playing until sometime late Friday night. What type of an impact do you think that actually has on Quinn and the game planning and the the players as far as getting ready and know who they're going to be facing each day? I, you know, before you jump in, I'll I'll share my thoughts on it. I don't think it makes that big of a difference because if we look at seasons past, normally now sometimes you do know your playoff seating and and you can get things solidified in seasons past before the last day of the year. But normally the NBA season ends on a Tuesday or a Wednesday and the playoffs start on Saturday. So teams haven't had more than two or three days to prepare for their opponent anyway. I don't think it's that different this year, except for the fact that, you know, just the Jazz are sitting at one, and for seven, eight days they're going to be wondering who it is they're going to get to face. Well, the other layer to that is if you make the second round of the playoffs, the conference finals, or the finals themselves, you have like two days to prepare anyway. They go right into those series. They don't take four days off between every series. Um and on the flip side, it's not like the Jazz opponents sitting there preparing for him. I mean, I guess the Grizzlies and Spurs probably have one side scout who's preparing for the Jazz because the Grizzlies and Spurs know they're coming to Utah. They survived the play-in. And I guess the loser of the Warriors-Lakers game could do the same thing if they lose tonight over the next few days. But 98% of the people in the organization are going to be focusing on the play-in tournament and not the Jazz at this point. And rightfully so. You know, you got to win the games ahead of you if you want to get to the Jazz at the point of playing games. So, as I said, I guess you could have one eye out of your 40 eyes in your scouting department on the Jazz if you're the Grizzlies or Spurs or Lakers or whoever. Um, but I don't think it matters. You don't have time between playoff series. You're not going to have time if you're the eighth seed between the playing game on Friday and Utah on Sunday. It's not a huge deal. Well, and the teams already have scouts that have been out looking at these teams. They've got a number of scouts in their system, at least if we're talking about the Jazz, who no longer have any responsibilities because the teams that they were tasked with scouting this season are no longer involved. They didn't make the playoffs. So you have the personnel to be able to assign to go and cover these games and get some some extra information and go back and watch tape throughout the season. I I agree with you. I don't think it makes that much of a difference at all. Yeah, you can't specifically start implementing game planning for one opponent, but you you know these teams. It's not like you're going to be facing them for the first time this year. Anybody the Jazz end up playing, they've played three times already this season. And this might be a little disrespectful, and that's not what I'm trying to go for here, but with the loser of tonight's game here on Wednesday, you wake up tomorrow morning and you prepare for the Warriors or Lakers for Thursday and Friday, and if the Spurs or Grizzlies happen to win the game on Friday, then you go, well, I wasted 48 hours preparing for the Lakers or the Warriors instead of the Spurs or Grizzlies. Oh, well, we'll go play Memphis now. And so you just have so many scouts and so many different eyes that you can prepare for two or three teams over the next couple of days and then get off to good foot regardless. So, as I said, you, theoretically, if the Lakers beat the Warriors, you start preparing for the Warriors, and if the Spurs or Grizzlies bounce into the um, eight, you just kind of shrug your shoulders and you know take it in stride. 
My last note before we move on is I sincerely doubt that Dennis Lindsay, Justin Sanek, Quinn Snyder, his coaching staff, I don't think there's a single person that I just listed right there that has ever complained about having too much information. The more they know about opponents, whether it be somebody they're going to play next week, next month, or next year, the better off they are. So, it, I mean, it is what it is. It's not a big deal. But let's move on, McCade. Let's jump into the news and notes portions. We can fly through this one really quick. Uh, sounds like news coming out of Toronto reported by Michael Grange with Sportsnet. Uh, this is kind of a surprise to me. It's 95% likely that Masai Ujiri returns as the Raptors general manager. Coming into this season, I did get the feeling that he had his eyes on a couple other franchises and might look to move on. So I'm kind of surprised to see this report. And, you know, based on the Raptors' performance this season, it surprises me as well. But I think you can throw probably a fair amount of the, the Raptors' season away just because it was such unusual circumstances for everybody in the league, but the Raptors didn't even get to go home once all season long. They played in Tampa Bay all year. So it's just a tough season. I do still think they have some pieces, and I think Masai Ujiri is a top-five GM in the league. So obviously this is a win for Toronto. Yep. Um, always good to keep a GM that just won you a championship a few years ago. So no complaints there from the uh, soon-to-no-longer-be Tampa Bay Raptors. And then a couple injury things we've got here. And with the Pacers, Karis LeVert, it was announced just yesterday afternoon that he was going to miss 10 to 14 days because of health and safety protocols. Obviously, he missed yesterday's game against New- or against uh, Charlotte. Who cares? The- wherever they play at, they-, they sucked yesterday. They were garbage. We'll talk about that game more. But that could have a big impact on the Pacers if they do end up making the playoffs, wouldn't it? Yeah, um, that's all. They've had an injury riddled season. Um, it gets easy to say, oh, yes, that's another impact player they lost. And it is, but I'm not sure Karis LeVert's going to flip a uh, Pacer 76ers series. I think Philly's in a good position regardless <laughs> of who wins. Um, Washington would be fun and would give Philly some trouble for a couple games, but I feel pretty confident in Philly escaping that 1 8 matchup uh, rather comfortably. So I don't think it matters big picture, but. As we've learned this year, it's never fun to see any player go into the health and safety protocols. I think you're right there, McKay. Karis LeVert having to miss a good portion of a potential first-round series against the 76ers really probably only means the difference between a Sixers sweep and the a Sixers gentleman sweep and winning in five games. I don't see it making that big of a difference. It just sucks that it's happening this time of year, but it's happened to teams all season long. Another team that was hit by health and safety protocols earlier in the season, the Washington Wizards, Bradley Beal's hamstring injury. I don't know. I know you were covering the uh, state baseball tournaments yesterday, McCade, on Tuesday while the Eastern Conference play-in games were going on, but Bradley Beal looks so limited by that hamstring that he's been favoring. He's laboring to get up and down the floor. Are the Wizards going to be able to go anywhere with this limited Bradley Beal? And then the the other question I have, McCade, is where do you draw the line? Like you've got a franchise superstar that you're trying to build around, and he's dealing with a soft tissue injury like this. You know you're not going to win a first-round playoff series if you're really being honest with yourself. Where do you, like I said, where do you draw the line and decide that Bradley Beal is not playing because it's not worth the risk of re-aggravating or injuring that hamstring even worse? Yeah, you know, Bradley Beal's obviously not right. I watched the Hornets-Wizards game on Sunday, and you could just tell he was struggling every step of the way. 
I think it's important to get home playoff games. That's good revenue, and so obviously he's going out in the plane because everyone wants to make the playoffs. But I would not be surprised if the Wizards won tomorrow and then he set out game one, maybe game two as well, and then play until they get back to Washington for game three. So he's going to keep fighting, and you respect him for that. But long-term, you have to ask questions, and you do have to kind of reevaluate if you do get the win tomorrow for a whole playoff series. So last question before we start talking about those two Eastern play-in games. We'll talk about the West as well. What is your overall opinion on the play-in games? Do you think it's a good addition by the NBA? Do you think it's something they keep moving forward? Do you think that having the Lakers and Warriors both end up in the play-in scenario is a good thing in the NBA's eyes? Or as some people are trying to say, is the league looking at this going, oh, this is worst-case scenario. Two of our marquee franchises, one of them is going to get knocked out before the playoffs even start. Well, so this year's a weird year, obviously, with COVID and the Lakers injuries and all that fun stuff. But it's been a great thing to tier the standings at one, two, four, six, seven, and nine, and ten. You know, every and eight. You know, every single seed has mattered except for maybe the three, four race or the five, six race, and that's brought a lot of value the last month of the regular season. So it's not going anywhere. The games themselves, um, I like watching basketball, regardless if it's a regular random season game or a playing game or a finals game. To me, at the very base level, it's just a forty-eight minute basketball game. And so they're fun to watch, but I don't think they've been anything special. We did get to mediocre games last night. I caught some of the Wizards-Celtics game, and Jason Tatum was awesome. But the Charlotte-Indiana game was obviously a blowout from the first five minutes. So we'll see how the West goes. As for the Warriors-Lakers, like, specifically, you know, it's it's fun. So in how long has the NBA had 16 teams in their playoffs? It's been, what, 45 years or so, 50 years or so? And a 7 or 8 seed has made the finals one time in a walkout short season back in uh, 1999, and the Knicks were able to get to the finals from an eight seed. And so you're really moving the seven, eight seed odds to make the finals from 0.2% to 0.1%. So I don't think the play-in matters much in terms of those teams making a finals run. I think it does change a little impact on the one and two seed uh, predictability. I think you're going to see a couple more seven, eight seed upsets because you're going to get more hot teams getting that eight spot. If you get that eight spot, that means you're coming off a win, arguably two wins, um, and so you've kind of got things going. So it wouldn't shock me if we saw an AC upset of one, you know, twice a decade instead of once a decade now. So overall, I think it's a great, great thing. Um, but the beauty about sports, I was talking to a coach yesterday, and the beauty about sports and playoffs in sports is we can sit here and talk on a podcast or write articles or discuss on Twitter all day. And at the end of the day, these 20 teams get to sell it on the court, even if, some teams are quote unquote a little more disadvantaged by playing in this plan. But again, the reason they're disadvantaged in the plan is because what they did in the regular season. So everything gets settled on the court, and that's what you love as a sports fan, especially in professional sports where it's so distinct. Everything is settled on the court down to the very last detail. So it's great. I love it. I'm enjoying every second of it. It's here to stay. I I just like the nature of having a one game playoff, essentially, because anybody who's ever played pickup basketball, you know that when you've got four or five guys sitting out waiting to step on the floor, that's your one game to win to stay on the court, and that's exactly what these guys are doing in the NBA. This is your one game to win. You know, you look at this Lakers-Warriors game that's going to be tonight. I'm really excited for it because I think that in a seven-game series, the Lakers probably win this in six easily, possibly even in five against the Warriors. But in one game when you've got LeBron and Anthony Davis, there's questions about their health still. You've got Steph Curry coming off probably his best career season 
He led the league in scoring. He in the, his last regular season game against Memphis, he attempted 22 three-point shots. But the Lakers are great at taking away the three-point shot. I just love the machinations of this. I do like that the 7-8 have an advantage that they've got two opportunities to win one game. It does give them the, the chance to still hold on to that 7 or 8 seed that they earned through the regular season. One of the arguments that I've heard against the play-in tournament is, well, why do you want to reward mediocrity? And I guess I don't look at it that way. And when I think about the play-in, I don't even necessarily look at the six play-in games that we're going to get over, you know, from yesterday through Friday night. I look more at the way the regular season ended. Instead of having 10, 12 teams that are just outright tanking and have no concern for winning at all, I looked at the standings. There were five teams this year that didn't care about winning the last couple months of the year. Just five. And that's going to happen in any sport, no matter what you do. But the fact that there were another six or seven teams that actually cared and you got more good basketball night after night through the end of the regular season, that's the big adjustment for me is that it just matters more to more teams. You look at the Wizards. They started off the season like 1-8, 1-9, 1-10, something like that. They had a a two-week period where they couldn't even practice because of health and safety protocols, and they had a bunch of guys testing positive for COVID, people on the coaching staff. And you felt like in mid-January that the the Wizards were just left for dead. And because they had a chance, I mean, and Russell Westbrook played great basketball from February on, but because they had a chance to get to 10, their season stayed alive, and and yeah, being in the Eastern Conference, they actually ended up getting up to the eighth spot, which was great for them, but in seasons past, the Wizards wouldn't have had much to play for, and that, for me, is why I like the play-in games. All right, McCade, let's take one quick break before we go and talk about the East play-in games from last night and preview the West play-in games from today. We're going to give a shout-out to the hashtag JazzPod Co-op. If you haven't had a chance, check out the Jazz Pod Co-op on Twitter. It's a group of podcasts with like-minded people that just want to share their opinions on the jazz. Here's a preview. Mark and Doug Hintzy on the twos and threes. The weird things about dude shots is like my favorite like NBA subcategory of and like, or they're like the length of their arms affecting something. I, I'm, I'm like, whether they jump off of one foot because, or two foot. Right. Like, Emily and McCoy on the Jazz of Gals. If anything, that video also reminded me like how just a few inches difference it was be- between us being on one side versus the other. You know, like, well, we all know a few inches can make a difference. Who, Logan and Jared on hitting the high notes. I don't even care if they're hurt. I mean, or they're, we're or not going to dance on any injuries, but yes. Oh, I, 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 might. Same. I might. Same. I, I, can't, I can't make any promises. <laughs> I don't even care if it's a fluke or we cheat. I don't even care. I'll take like, yeah. If you're not cheating, you're not trying, right? Um, yeah. That's what they say. And Brian and McCade on home court press. With Boyan, Memphis is really struggling to shoot. So giving the Boyan to the Grizzlies and then having the Grizzlies forward our first-round pick onto another team. If you can get Boyan a first-round pick and then get Memphis to throw in a first-round pick in the A and take Boyan, a lot of possibilities open for a guy like John Collins. Welcome back to Home Court Press. Brian Priest joined by McCade Pearson, as always. And we just got done talking about the merits of the play-in and if we enjoy it or not, McCade. We both agree that it's a great thing for the league and it should be here to stay. Let's talk about the Eastern Conference play-in games from yesterday. I was blown away by both of these, honestly. I put $15 on a parlay 
for the Wizards and the Hornets to win last night. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> the Pacers end up blowing out the Hornets 144 to 117. I mean, they were up 30 points in the first half. That game was over early. And then this Washington-Boston game, I really thought that Boston, with being without Jalen Brown, they've had chemistry issues all season long. I, I expected the Celtics to roll over and both the Celtics and Pacers to be more interested in going home than continuing to play basketball this season. Yeah, they were unique games, as I mentioned earlier. They weren't the most entertaining things in the world that we'd hoped for. Um, People make the joke, and it's a little more real than we hope, but the East is kind of, especially on a play-in 7-10 level, is kind of the JV to the West varsity. Um, so hopefully tonight's games are better. And, and regardless of the balls, it's a fun atmosphere and fun environment. It was a fun culture around, okay, this is an elimination game, and this is a not quite elimination game, but it's like game six where you have a 3-2 series lead in principle. So it was good, entertaining stuff, even if the games themselves weren't great. You got some good performances from individual players. We mentioned Bradley Beal fighting through the injury. Um, Jason Tatum goes nuts. Pacers just played a really good game, and Sabonis is a legit all-star level player, borderline all-NBA player. So you still got to see the stars do their things. But, yeah, in terms of a pure, pure entertainment standpoint, not the best night of basketball we witnessed. You mentioned Amana Sabonis. He's been incredible. He was a borderline all-star, ended up making the all-star team, won the skills competition. He's a guy that I love his game. He finished yesterday with 14 points, 21 boards, and 9 assists. Over the last, like, two months of the season, Sabonis nearly averaged a triple-double himself, and I don't know that I heard anybody talking about it. I just heard that stat on a podcast from The Athletic yesterday and had no idea how good basketball he's been playing lately. Oh, yeah, he's been awesome. And, you know, he kind of has the myth, the legend father who, you know, came into the league later in his career after playing in Europe and then was, like, pretty good in the NBA but not great in the NBA because he came in in his 30s. And it was just kind of this myth, uh, mythic creature almost. Um, and then, you know, Sabonis grows up here in the United States and Lithuania, bouncing back and forth because of it. And now he's turned into a better player than his dad, which nobody really wants to say. Um, but he's just legit thir- top 30, 35 player in this league, and he's really fun to watch. And that's what the plan's all about is getting these borderline playoff teams an opportunity to present their stars for another game right in front of our eyes where they are the main focus. And then looking at that Celtics game, Jason Tatum was incredible. 50 points, that's the... I think the second time in the last couple of weeks he scored 50. He scored 60, matching the Celtics franchise high. Before I go too far with this, were you surprised that 60 is the the Celtics scoring high for the franchise? I figured it would be more with their history. I mean, the Jazz have a couple games higher than that. Uh, Malone had his 63, and Pete had a couple in the 60s. Yeah, 60 is kind of a low number for the Celtics, but Tatum was awesome, specifically in the second half. You know, he comes out and he puts, I want to say it was, 34 the second half, somewhere in the low 30s. Um, and it really helped the Celtics run away from that game after the Wizards gave him a good punch in the face in the first half and into the third quarter. So that was a lot better of a game. Um, the blowout kind of happened a little bit later. And again, the for lack of a better term, the blowout happened because of a great individual, amazing performance. Um, I saw jokes on Twitter flying around last night that the uh, Charlotte Hornets in their blowout loss um, set the record for most points by a road team in a playing game. Um, and now you have Jason Tatum setting records with 50 points in a playing game. And we'll see where those stats fall and how you know how serious we take them. But regardless, 50 points in an NBA game, even if it disappears into nowhere, it was still a big-time performance in Jason Tatum to lock him into a really fun net Celtics matchup that has a lot of storylines. Let's talk about uh, the matchup that we have left now. Thursday night, it's going to be Wizards 
at home against the Pacers, right? Yes, sir. So who do you have favored in that one? I think that one's probably a pretty even matchup. I think Washington pulls this out. Um, they've been playing fantastic the last couple months. Um, Russell Westbrook's played like legit top 20 all-NBA player over the last three, four months, which he seems to do. He seems to have a really rough start, and then he gets really, really good in February, March, April, and then you get to the playoffs, and he stops some issues that he you know, works back towards. We saw it last night with, you know, he was shot 6 for 18 last night. But I think they have enough star power with Beal and Westbrook to take down Sabonis, and then they just have a little bit more depth. Guys like Raul Neto, Davis Bertans, Robin Lopez. Can I give Robin Lopez a big shout-out just because he's – I that guy's just great. Um, especially the hair. And then, you know, you have Sancho some more players like Ish Smith, who is going to be in the league until he plays for all 30 teams, I'm convinced. So they have some depth players, especially when you talk about all the Pacers injuries. I think the Wizards just escaped this game, um, not that it sets them up for any success further in the playoffs, but I trust the Wizards to get it back together in a must-win game. You know, they kind of had a similar thing on Sunday when they played the Hornets in the winter. Got the eight seed, got this extra loss that they used last night. So I think the Wizards pulled out. My only question, I think you're probably right, but I really worry about Bradley Beal and that hamstring, man. He does not look right. And after Westbrook and Bradley Beal, the, the Wizards get awfully thin, awfully fast. And so I wonder how effective they're going to be able to be. I think that if the Pacers can lock in defensively, I think they're good enough to be able to beat the Wizards. I just don't know if the Pacers' heart is in it from night to night. That's my biggest question. Yeah, you hope your heart's into it in a must-win game. I mean, this is the main source of the play. And the 7-8 game's fun, the 9-10 game's fun. But we're here to see an 8-9 winner move on, loser go home game. And that's what this is. Okay, so let's move west. Tonight, we've got, we're going to start with the undercard, San Antonio at Memphis. Honestly, I think this is going to be a really fun game. I think these two teams match up well with each other. The Spurs, obviously, very guard-oriented with DeJounte Murray and Patty Mills and Derek White. They, they have so many different point guards and guys with length that they can play. And then Memphis with the youth movement, Ja Morant, Brandon Clark, Jaron Jackson Jr. coming back looking pretty good. They've got Jonas Valanciunas patrolling the paint. Who do you expect to win this game? Uh, I think Memphis take care of business. They're even a better team now that Jaron Jackson's back healthy for the first time. Um, and forever, you know, he's played the last couple weeks after missing the first 50-55 games of the season. Um, so I think Memphis pulls it out. And I will throw this out there because obviously this is really important for the Jazz because they played the winner of the play-in. The, the Jazz have a very legit chance to play the Grizzlies or the Spurs. You know, it's only two games to get into the eighth seed, and the Grizzlies or the Spurs are guaranteed to win tonight. And the winner of tonight's game will be one game away from playing the Jazz. There's a lot of narrative, and rightfully so, that the Jazz are going to play the Warriors or Lakers. The Jazz are going to play the Warriors or Lakers. But we're getting to Friday night. It's a one-game sound sample. It's a season on the line, and the Spurs or Grizzlies will be there. So don't brush off these two teams quite yet. We'll brush one of them off tonight. But both these teams have a legit chance to pull off these next two wins and play the Jazz. 3-2-1. Who do you think winning tonight and then playing the loser of Golden State, L.A., who has a better chance to beat them? So that's an interesting question from Jazz fans' perspective because the base level, you want to play the Spurs, obviously. They're a 10 seed. They have a lot of struggles. You know, you'd, you'd sweep the Spurs, beat them in five games. But you do have to worry about them winning that second game. And so you do get worried about a Lakers-Spurs matchup is almost a guaranteed Lakers win. Um, so I'm going to cheer for the Grizzlies tonight just because I think the Grizzlies have a very legit chance to beat the Warriors. We saw on Sunday they were right there in the fourth quarter. Or even the Lakers. The Grizzlies are a good, young, up-and-coming team. And I have no doubt in my mind that the Grizzlies can put together for 48 minutes and win a game on Friday. I'm not saying I'd bet on them to. But I would rather just get the Grizzlies there and have a legit 
at least a more legit chance of playing a Memphis San Antonio team than get San Antonio there against a potential Lakers team that wouldn't have as much hope. So I have one question with Memphis San Antonio for you before we start talking about Golden State and the Lakers. Ja Morant cannot shoot a jump shot. He's terrible from the perimeter. And Greg Popovich is one of those coaches that will take advantage of that thing. And if he sees an opponent that struggles with something, he's just going to give it to him. I mean, we saw the Spurs in the finals against Miami and LeBron where they were just letting him shoot. That's my biggest hesitation in saying that Memphis should be favored in this game as I think Popovich is by far the best coach. And I worry about how is John Morant going to adjust if the Spurs just give him 10 feet of room and they pack the paint and take away the drive? Yeah, and uh, DeMar DeRozan's a very good player. I, I had him on my all-star team this year. Um, he gets a lot of hate because he didn't have the quote-unquote playoff success in Toronto that people thought he should have. And then, of course, the Kawhi trade, and they win a title. Um, but that's just because Kawhi Leonard is better than DeMar DeRozan. But DeRozan's still a fantastic player, um, especially in the mid-range, getting the free-throw line, just doing his thing. So San Antonio has a very real shot in this game. I think the Memphis minus four lines a tad high. I think this is a pretty 50-50 game. I just trust the Grizzlies at home uh, with a little bit more secondary power um, in guys like Jaron Jackson Jr. And Kyle Anderson's made a huge leap this year that they'll be able to pull it out. Okay, let's move to California. Warriors going down to L.A., taking on the Lakers. Steph Curry, LeBron James. Lakers are favored by 5.5 in this ballgame. It's scheduled for 8 o'clock tonight. Who's your favorite in one game with these two? I mean, it's really hard to bet against LeBron and AD if they're healthy. Um, if they're healthy, That's the it's question, another conversation. Though. If they're healthy. It's another conversation. Um, I just think they take I – mean, we saw the two home teams win last night. There's a reason the home teams are favored, A, because they're a the better seed, so theoretically they're a the better team, and B, they're at home. So I think the Lakers pulled this out. I think this one's another very 50-50 game. Uh, Steph Curry could easily go for 50 tonight, and the Warriors win by 15, and I wouldn't bleak an eye. I'd be like, okay, that's just Steph Curry. That's a top-12 player of all time right there. Um and this is a great, fun matchup. This matchup might get the same ratings as a conference finals game or even an early finals game, depending on who the teams are. You know, this game might get higher ratings than the Milwaukee-Utah finals we're going to see. So it's going to be an enjoyable matchup. Let me ask you, though, because I've been looking into numbers, and I'm not sure I'm quite there yet, but it has crossed my mind that I might be cheering for the Warriors to beat the Lakers. Do you, are you that strongly opinionated that we would rather play the Warriors than the Lakers? Thanks for tuning in today. It's Season 2 of Home Court Press with McCade Pearson and Brian Priest as we make our return with Season 2 Playoffs Edition. Look for our Jazz Bites game recaps after almost every Jazz game and our weekly Wednesday looking at happenings around the league as the playoffs unfold. Home Court Press can be found on any of your major podcatchers, including Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, and on Twitter at homecourt underscore press. And please, if you like what you're hearing, share, rate, and review the show so we can expand our audience. Lastly, give McCade Pearson a follow on Twitter at McCadeP8, and you can find me, Brian Priest, on Twitter at bpriest24. As always, thanks for listening to Home Court Press. Take note. Now back to the show. We talked about this a little bit yesterday while we were golfing. Um, I Personally, I would rather see the Lakers win this game and go on to play Phoenix because I, I think that defensively, and obviously it does come back to if healthy, that's always going to be the question. The Jazz are going to have a hard time matching up with LeBron on the perimeter with Anthony Davis. I don't worry about Rudy Gobert because I think that the Lakers are going to insist on playing 
Andre Drummond for 20, 25 minutes a night, and Rudy's going to dominate Andre Drummond. If the the Lakers do go all in and play Anthony Davis at the five, that could give the Jazz problems. But I would rather see the Warriors in the first round. Yeah, the the Warriors are a, have a great pedigree, but they're 39 and 33 this season. They've been really good at times when Steph is hot. There's been other times where they've struggled, They and they don't have – really any depth to speak of. Behind Steph and Draymond Green, I mean, Andrew Wiggins occasionally will have a game. Jordan Poole has looked pretty good at times this year. Kent Bazemore is decent on the perimeter. But I think with the way the Jazz are constituted, they're a far better matchup with the Warriors. And I think they beat that team in five games, whereas if they end up playing the Lakers in the first round, worst-case scenario, that's going to go seven games. And even if the Jazz win that series... They're going to be beat to hell going into the second round against either the Clippers or the Mavericks, and I don't want to face either of those teams with a less than full tank. All right, let me make the argument for why I'd rather play the Lakers. As I said, I'm not sure I'm 100% there yet, but I'm like 65 70% sure that I'm going to get there by tonight. Um, LeBron James' whole career has been based off the fact that he is the Shaq um, in the more modern era, Giannis or Zion character that just has this ability to get to the rim and finish at the rim better than really any player we've ever seen. As I said, it's Shaq-like, except LeBron's a guard um, who can pass the ball with the best of them all time, and that's what makes him so dangerous. I am not sure he is ready at his age and physical condition and injury status to play against Rudy Gobert's rim protection for five, six, seven games. And I know that sounds super homer of me to say, yeah, Rudy Gobert's going to shut down LeBron. But I think the way the Jazz defense is built around Rudy Gobert in the rim would really give LeBron James and Anthony Davis some struggles. You mentioned earlier LeBron's shooting struggles against San Antonio a few years ago. LeBron's turned into an all-right three-point shooter. He's still terrible in the mid-range. Um, there's a myth that LeBron just makes everything. He's still very rough in the mid-range, and he's taking those shots out of his game, and rightfully so. And I just don't know if LeBron's health and ankle can stand up against Rudy Gobert, who allows opponents to shoot 15% worse than their season averages at the rim. And I just don't think the Lakers' offense, which has struggled all year and that has a lot of no LeBron in it, a lot of no AD in it, a lot of no LeBron and AD in it, but I think the Lakers' offense has struggled all year and Rudy Gobert can do a good job to keep that Lakers' offense sidelined to an extent. And I just worry about Steph Curry doing what Jamal Murray did last year. The Warriors have been awesome since uh, Wiseman went down, Kelly Oubre went down, and that helped a little bit as well. The Lakers have been so good since Wiseman went down. I just don't know how the Jets stop the Warriors' offense and stop Steph Curry specifically. I don't trust Mike Conley to do it. I don't trust Donovan to do it. I don't trust Royce to get around the screens and stay on Curry, and rightfully so. I mean, Steph Curry's a top 12 player of all time. He's fantastic. Um, scoring champ, all the MVPs, all the championships, all that fun stuff. And I'm just not sure I trust the Jazz defense against Steph Curry as much as I trust Rudy Gobert to defend the rim against the Lakers. I've got two points there. One with the Lakers, I I think really it's just as simple as I would rather the Suns find out if the Lakers are healthy or not than the Jazz have to worry about it. And as far as Steph Curry goes, I get the Steph Curry-Jamal Murray comparison from Murray last year in the playoffs, the way he torched the Jazz perimeter defense. The difference is that the Jazz couldn't double Jamal Murray last year because they had to focus so much of their defensive intensity on Nikola Jokic. He was the problem in the playoffs last year. Yeah, Murray was the one scoring the points, but Jokic was the the fulcrum that opened everything up for Jamal Murray and, and that Nuggets offense. 
the Warriors don't have that luxury. Steph Curry can go run off of as many screens as he wants. Hell, Steph Curry can average 40 points per game in that series. But the Warriors don't have that second option that can be great and not only facilitate. Obviously, Draymond Green can facilitate, but he's not going to score 20, 30 points a game. And the Warriors don't really have anybody else that can do that consistently. And that's why I think I would rather play the Warriors. And that's totally fair. Um, and then the flip side of that is the Jazz have to score points on the other side, and the Lakers have an elite defense. They have been a top-five defense with LeBron, yeah, with yeah. AD, missing one of them, missing both of them. They were still great. They just have a lot of defensive talent there. Drummond's rough against certain matchups for sure. Um, but, you know, Caruso's really good. Kuzma's fine. You know, they have pieces there in a good system. Frank Vogel had all those years in Indiana where he just shut down teams, including LeBron with their Roy Rudy Gobert prototype and Roy Hibbert. Um, that the defense is just so good in L.A. that I worry that the Jazz might get into a, okay, let's see our superstars versus your superstars. And with all due respect to Donovan Mitchell, he's not going to outdo LeBron James in a, hey, let's just do ISO ball stuff. If the Jazz want to beat either of these teams, frankly, they're going to have to do it as a team, um, just like they have all regular season, because you're not going to have Donovan Mitchell outdo Steph Curry or LeBron James. So I do get that side of things. I think it's going to be a lot easier to score on the Warriors who don't have the defensive talent there outside of Draymond Green, just kind of wrecking random havoc. Um, so I'm still very up in the air about it, and that's my argument kind of for both sides. But I will not be devastated if the Lakers lose tonight. And again, you always have the San Antonio Memphis winner ready to play on Friday with a chance to knock the Warriors or Lakers out completely. So we'll see what happens. I'm super pumped for these games tonight. I don't have anywhere to be tonight, so I'm going to sit down, grab a drink, and watch basketball for five hours and enjoy every second of it. McCade, I'm going to hold your feet to the coals. I I think you want to pick the Lakers. I'm going to make you pick somebody. Who do you want the Jazz to have to play? Who do I want? You have to, to, you have to pick it right now. You, you can't. San Antonio, right? No, I. It's out of the Lakers okay. or the Warriors. Who do you want the Jazz to play? So my number one rule is to leave emotion out of it, but I'm going to open that door just for this one answer then, so I have an uh, excuse to fall back on. <laughs> I really want to beat the Lakers, man. Kobe Bryant <laughs> and the Lakers ruined my childhood um, for three straight years between 08 and 10. And so just from an emotional standpoint, it would be so fun to be the first team to knock LeBron out in the first round, be the first team to beat LeBron in an interconference series since he was in Cleveland the first time. He hasn't lost an interconference series since 2010. It would be really fun just to make Lakers fans hate life for losing in the first round. And so from an emotional standpoint, I think that swings the final edge for me that I really want to beat the Lakers. Um, and I'm totally prepared to get exposed with cold takes and all that fun stuff when the Lakers beat the Jazz in four games next week. Um, bring on the Lakers, and I'll be happily excited at the decent chance the Jazz have to just beat down on the team that ruined my childhood. Doesn't it feel good to cleanse your soul and just come out with it and say to hell with the Lakers, I want the Jazz to beat them because they hurt me as a kid? Yes, sir. So, it, you know, that, that's where we're at right now. Um, big picture, though, the Jazz are in a good position. And these teams are scary, but the Jazz are one seat for the reason, and the Jazz are really, really scary. So we'll see what happens over the next, you know, 48 hours or so by the time these games get started, and we'll be prepared to play whoever on Sunday. Okay, do you have your individual awards ready? As ready as they're going to be. Let's go through this pretty quick. We got top three for each one. Let's start with the awards that are not going to involve the Jazz. So I want to go somewhere near and dear to your heart. Most improved player. Who do you have one through three? So Julius Randle is going to win this. Um, and I love Julius Randle. But I don't think he's actually been that much better than he was in New Orleans a couple years ago. 
regardless, there's just not a lot of good candidates. I hate giving it to a second-year player, Michael Porter Jr. Jeremy Grant hasn't played lately. Um, you know, Christian Wood didn't play a lot this year. So there's not a ton of strong candidates here. So you got to go Julius Randle. And then I'd probably go with Jeremy Grant and Kyle Anderson after that. Dude, you're, you're missing somebody. You named everybody on my list except for one person who right. I've got second. I got Julius Randle winning this one. Michael Porter Jr. is third, partially because of what he did over the last couple months for my fantasy team. But he's been fantastic with the Nuggets. He's been great playing off of Jokic. He's actually looked passable defensively. But in I second— don't like giving it to second-year players. Like That's what you're supposed to do from a rookie to a sophomore yeah. jump is get a lot better. So I struggle voting for second-year players, especially— top three or four picks and i get michael porter jr wasn't technically a top three or four pick but that's the talent he was that's where he was going to go until he entered his back so go now, on. that's that's fair i get that reasoning but in second for most improved players zach levine how do you forget zach levine and the jump that he made in chicago eliminating some of the bonehead plays that he used to to deal with on a night after night basis he ends up making the all-star team for the first time yeah he did miss the last what 20 games or so of the regular season but I feel like he has to be on this list. Yeah, and he crawled back and played the last five or six. Um, and yeah, he struggled after the All-Star break, some COVID stuff, and then, yeah, coming back from that. But he was fantastic, especially the first four or five months of the season. His shooting percentage went absolutely berserk and through the ceiling. So I have no problem with that. That would have been great. So we both have Julius Randle winning the most improved player. Rookie of the year, what do you have? Uh, I think this one's pretty easy for the yep. most part. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton's going to finish third, and I have him third, and then you can argue LaMelo versus Anthony Edwards. I'll go with the consensus of LaMelo Ball. Just looked a lot better. Um, Anthony Edwards was great down the stretch, but he really struggled during the season. Those shooting numbers are still very sketchy, and you know how I feel about true shooting percentage. So I went LaMelo, <laughs> Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Halliburton. I've got the same order as you, my reasoning. Tyrese Halliburton looks really good. I think Halliburton might end up being the best of the three if that Sacramento franchise doesn't drag him down. LaMelo, I gave it to him because I felt like what he did to make his team better was much more important than individual numbers, and he's an incredible passer. He He's so much better than I ever imagined he would be. And then Anthony Edwards, he's Probably fairly much more explosive than LaMelo Ball. I mean, he scored 40 a couple times, and he did some good things up in Minnesota. But I think the overall body of work just wasn't as impressive as LaMelo Ball. And there's probably a lot more questions about Anthony Edwards than there is about Ball. So we both agree on that one. Ball, Edwards, Halliburton in order for Rookie of the Year. Now we're going to get into some of these jazz-focused awards I'm going to start with the Defensive Player of the Year because, to me, it's the most clear-cut and dried of the three that the Jazz are involved in. It's got to be Rudy Gobert. Every single metric you look at, every single game you watch with the Jazz, the eye test shows how impactful he is. I, I just don't know how anybody could vote for anyone else. Let's just throw out Rudy Gobert. Not only was the best player defensively this season, the 2020-2021 Rudy Gobert season might be the best individual defensive season of all time. It yeah. was ridiculous what he did this year. And he's going to win his third defensive player of the year, and rightfully so. I'm just going to throw that out there before we get to our second and third place votes. Yep, you're 100% right, and Rudy deserves every bit of that award. He's been incredible this season. For me personally, I've got Draymond second because of what he did with that Warriors team. The Warriors are actually a good defensive team, and it all revolves around Draymond Green. 
and his intensity and ability to defend multiple positions. And I've got Ben Simmons third. I don't like Ben Simmons, but he is a very good defensive player. His versatility is great for that Sixers team. And I've heard a lot of people try and make the arguments that Ben Simmons isn't even the best defensive player on his team. And I just don't buy it. I think that a lot of what the Sixers do defensively as a team is because of what Ben Simmons can do individually. So I've got Rudy, Draymond, and then Ben Simmons coming up third. Yeah, I'm going a little more unique here. Giannis took a step back this year, and they're switching a lot more. And, mm-hmm. You know, people make fun of Rudy Gobert for, you know, they don't make fun of him. They incorrectly assume he can't guard switches, and Giannis has had a little trouble on switches, ironically enough. But Giannis is still the best secondary in protecting the league by a wide, wide margin. So I still have him second, which I think is a little more of a hot take than what you'll see on most balance on most ballots. And then same with third, it's a little more of a hot take is Clint Capella deserves a big shout out in Atlanta for what they're doing down there. Um, you kind of have a similar Allen Iverson to Kenny Matumbo thing where everybody loves the guard star who shoots a ton and does all this fun, fancy stuff. And you just have such a solid center that's really leading the charge. Um, so Clint Capella is probably the main reason that the Hawks are sitting in that four or five matchup. So I think I got to give him a good shout out there. So a little more unique. You're probably not going to see either on a ton of ballots, but I want to give those guys their dues. I, I, see exactly why you would talk about those. I mean, Clint Capella leads the league in rebounding this year per game. I think he was third or fourth in blocks per game. He was great defensively for the Hawks, and without Clint Capella, that Hawks team does not have home court advantage in the first round. They're nowhere even close. So I I see where you're going with that. I like it. Uh, Six man of the year. This has been a hot topic, especially in Jazz land, because they probably have one and two. Who's yours? They do have one and two, and third's up for a big debate there. I still have no idea who's going to win this award. I think it's very, very close. I think it's a very realistic possibility. Joe Ingles gets more first-place votes, but Jordan Clarkson gets so many second-place votes that he actually wins the award, which is a pretty rare thing. only happens once every few years. But I have Joe Ingles and then Jordan Clarkson uh, and then Derek Rose. The argument against Joe Ingles is he started 30 games, but he didn't start a single game in which Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley were healthy. He just stepped up when the Jazz needed to step up when one of those two was healthy. And so Joe Ingles, who finished 165th in game started, which theoretically a six-man should finish between 150th and 180th in game started, is my pick. Okay, so let me ask you about that. Joe Ingles starting 30 games. Isn't that exactly what you would want out of a sixth man is a guy who, when somebody in the starting lineup is unavailable, that they can step right into it seamlessly and take over that role, whatever it is, whether it be running point guard, whether it be off the ball as the three, whether it be as a a big ball handler, but primarily playing the shooting guard position and getting out in transition. Like That's exactly what Joe Ingles has been all year is... Jordan Clarkson, probably more of your prototypical sixth man and and the type of player who would win this award, you know, a la Lou Williams. Uh, Jamal Crawford are two guys that I think compare very favorably to Jordan Clarkson. Yeah, but I just, I think that Clarkson, if Clarkson wins this award, it's not undeserved, but it's largely based on the first six weeks of the season and not what he's done since February 1. Whereas Joe Ingles, even with the 30 starts, I think Joe's been pretty consistent all season long. He flirted with the best true shooting percentage in NBA history for a while this year. He can pass the ball. He can play pretty good positional defense. What he lacks in athleticism, he makes up for with intelligence and ability to be in the right spots. And he's got great length. I just think Joe Ingles brings more to the floor night after night. And that's 
probably why I lean him sixth man of the year. But Jordan Clarkson is a, a viable candidate, and if he wins it, I'm not going to be upset at all. The only reason I'd be upset here is if somehow neither of these guys win the award, which I just don't think is possible. It's not possible. It's not possible <laughs> they tie either. Um, it is technically possible, but the way the scoring method set up with the three votes and whatnot, it's not possible. Um, you know, Lamar Odom won this award 10 years ago by starting 35 games for an injured Andrew Bynum, and you kind of have the similar thing here with Joe, with Donovan and Mike both missing 20 games. Joe stepped up. I don't think the Jazz are the number one seed if they start Jordan Clarkson for 30 games nope. when those guys are down. And so that is exactly what you want from your sixth man is when Mike Conley, when your all-stars go down, you need somebody to step up and make sure you get enough wins to hold on the one seed, and that's what Joe Ingles did. So I have Joe Ingles. There's been 17 voters who have tweeted out their uh, ballots already, and Joe Ingles has a 11-6 to lead for first-place votes. But as I said, um, Joe Ingles is really struggling to get second-place votes, while Jordan Clarkson is getting almost all of those second-place votes. So it's going to be a very, very, very close race. That could go either way. Um, Vegas has shifted from about 90-10 Clarkson to about 55-45 Clarkson. So this is one we probably will not know until it's actually announced. Now, I had Miles Bridges third on this one, but honestly, it's kind of a throwaway. I, yeah, I think that I, I what the Hornets did was surprising this year, and Miles Bridges was really good with that team. But honestly, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Now, I had Derrick Rose. He played well enough to get traded back to Tom Thibodeau for the 18th time in his career, it feels like, and then he did a good job for New York. New York actually has a really solid bench um, that they rotate in and out with, you know, Derrick Rose, Alec Burks, Aaron Snowell, and some other guys. So good for the Knicks, but that's about it. Okay, Coach of the Year. This one, is it the most controversial? Is it the one that has the most question to it? Maybe controversial is the wrong word. I think there's a for sure top three, and I think Jazz fans don't want to admit the top three. Um, Quinn's really going to struggle to win this, and Quinn's been great, but the Jazz have been great for a few years now, and the Jazz are the number one seed in large part because Joe Ingles stepped up. Uh, Rudy Gobert made a jump this year. Not a jump. Um, Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, I don't think, made jumps, but they both went from the middle of their tiers to the upper end of their tiers, and Mike Conley played a lot better, and so there were a couple things Quinn did in the offseason to deserve this award, specifically re-embracing offensive rebounding, embracing the early transition three, both things that really helped. Um, playing Rudy Gobert three stints to the two, I think, was great. But those were all off-season things. I'm not sure that impacts the narrative throughout the season or if Quinn did enough in-season to shift um, enough votes his way. So I think Quinn takes third, and rightfully so, and that's a big shout-out to Quinn. It'll be his second time being a finalist in three years, four years, and, you know, that's impressive. Um, so, yeah, I think Quinn's third, and we can discuss the top two. Or Where do you have Quinn? I've got Quinn second, and the reason why I have Quinn second is not because I don't think he deserves the award. I think that of all the individual awards, obviously they're all narrative-driven, but I think Coach of the Year it has the most narrative behind it. And for that reason, because of Phoenix missing the playoffs for so many years, more than a decade, uh, Tom Thibodeau in New York and what he's done with that Knicks franchise, one of the... They're they're not a marquee franchise anymore, but the league really, really wants them to be. I I just don't see Quinn being able to win this one. So I personally, I've got Monty Williams taking this one, and I think he deserves it. I think he probably, all things considered, had a did a better job of coaching that team. Did they benefit from health all season long? Yeah, but. I just thought that Monty was great down in Phoenix and allowing Chris Paul to come in and take over that team and teach those guys how to win. Quinn Snyder was terrific, and he's always going to be underrated. And then I've got Thibodeau third, personally, just because I I don't think the Knicks... I don't know. I, 
I just wanted to give Quinn second, really. That's that's the biggest reason. <laughs> so, Thibodeau, got, you you could make the argument. I got Tibbs one money too, and I'll make the Abado for the Abado. I'll make the argument for uh, Thibodeau that you know the Knicks weren't supposed to make the playoffs, and now they have home court advantage in the first round in a very interesting series against Atlanta. I mentioned how I don't think. Julius Randle made that big of a jump. I think he got a little bit better shooting and then just got put in the spot a little bit more because his team was actually winning. But the Knicks' defense has been phenomenal. And, I mean, Nerlens Noel is a solid rim protector. Like, that's fine. But it's not like the Knicks have these great defenders. You know, Julius Randle's not fantastic. All these young players aren't great. And Thibodeau has done his thing, just like he did in Chicago, where somehow he gets these guys just to be a great borderline elite defense. And I think that's a big, big part of his coaching is his ability to get his teams to play defense. Um, it goes underestimated sometimes. So I have Tibbs getting the Knicks home court advantage, the freaking Knicks home court advantage um, at number one. See, I see your argument with that one, but I, I almost feel like that might be more of you like to zig a little bit more when people are zagging, and so so you like to throw those curveballs in there. And not saying that you're wrong, I just don't think Tim Tibbs. When you look at the Eastern Conference versus the Western Conference, there's no way I can give that award to Thibodeau because of the level of competition that the Knicks have had to face night after night compared to what the Jazz and Suns were doing. And that's fair. And I will say, you know, Jazz fans obviously want Quinn to win the award because oh, the Jazz are the number one seed, so he should win the award. And I don't like that super base logic of just give it to the coach of the best team in the league because there's a lot of factors in being the best in the league but i will say uh tom thibodeau's um argument here is very similar to jerry sloan's back in 2004 which jazz fans have a gripe about that it's like yeah this team finished like 25 wins better than they were supposed to and there's no real reason for it other than the coaching just like did some things to make it work um so you know jazz fans as i said they kind of hold a grudge on that 2004 jerry sloan season when he took andre karolinko and 35 games in mount harboring to 42 wins and Thibodeau, I think you'll look back and we'll see how some of these younger players turn out and how Julius Randle's career develops after he's kind of up on a pedal stool now. But I think we could look back in 20 years and be like, wow, Tom Thibodeau really got that team to the second round of the playoffs somehow. So this one's interesting. There's been 20 uh, voters who have released their ballots publicly, and uh, Thibodeau leads Monty Williams 10-9 with one vote going to Quinn Snyder. So this is another one that is going to be extremely down to the wire um, that we will not know until later. Okay, last award we've got, MVP, save the best for last. We both have Jokic winning it, right? Yes, sir. Okay, so Jokic obviously the way, wins MVP this one. five deep, not three. Oh, yeah, I, I just wanted to do three. I didn't care to go any deeper. I could have. I would have had Rudy if we went five deep. I was going to say, I got Rudy a four, so I say we go five deep and so we can give Rudy some love. <laughs> Let's go All four right. deep. I'll throw Rudy at four. I think that's very <laughs> fair. We got Jokic winning. But the, the big questions here, who do you have two and three? Um, I have Steph Curry, too. I think what he's done this year in Golden State's just been incredible. I have Giannis at three. I think Giannis's numbers have improved over his two previous MVP seasons almost across the board. But voter fatigue is very real, and I think it's affecting Giannis right now. He He could have a claim to actually win the award for the third year in a row, but... What Jokic has done in Denver, especially after Murray went down, I don't think you can look past it. And the fact that he's played almost every game this year gives him a, a little edge there. Steph Curry, I also have second. But, yeah, I, I put Giannis third. Who are you yeah, debating Yeah, I'm with? going Giannis third. Um, I had a brain farm for some reason. Giannis wasn't coming to mind. No, yeah, so I'm for sure going Jokic, Curry, Giannis, uh, Rudy Gobert fourth, and I'd put Luka fifth, although I don't have looked into fifth at all, so don't take that any seriously. Um, Joel Embiid missed too many games for me. He's going to get a lot of second place votes. He's going to be left off a lot of ballots. Um, but Embiid missed too many games for me. So 
and, and then the way Curry was able to turn around the season for Golden State after the rough start, and Giannis is just a – I got hate for it a couple weeks ago on Twitter, but I totally stand by it. Giannis is like a legit top 15 player of all time in his prime, and we need to appreciate that. He's a two-way monster um, averaging, you know, basically 30, 15, and 5 um, when he gets the minutes, and you just have to appreciate that in the moment. Yeah, I I agree with you there. So Jokic, Curry, Giannis, we both agree on that. And then we, we got to give Rudy fourth place in MVP. And that's going to be something that people look at and they hear. And how can Rudy, he only scores 13, 14 points a game. He's not an offensive threat. And uh, that argument's just stupid. And I get tired of hearing it. I get tired of hearing the argument about Rudy getting played off the floor in the playoffs because it's just simply not true. I mean, if you point to the first series against the Rockets, was it three years ago now when the Jazz lost in five? The only reason the Jazz were even close in any of those games was Rudy Gobert. Everybody else on the floor was objectively terrible for the Jazz that year. And yeah, do you see Clint Capella rim runs and catching some alley-oops from James Harden? Yeah, you do. But that's more because Rudy had so much responsibility to guard everybody on the floor. I don't, I don't even need to get into this argument. I'm getting heated just talking about Rudy Gobert getting played off the floor. People that say that are stupid. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. Um, I can't remember if John Hollinger has an official vote or not. All Jazz fans hated him for criticizing the Jazz offseason, which ended up being kind of accurate, ironically. The Jazz did not have a great offseason coming into this year, and every concern has kind of proven valid. But in the current day, John Hollinger had Rudy Gobert second on his MVP ballot, um, and so that's interesting. Rudy Gobert up at number two is, is pretty bold, and a lot of people didn't like that on Twitter. But shout-out to John Hollinger for that. I can't remember if he has an official ballot or not, though. Yeah, Hollinger got a lot of hate from Jazz fans for his preseason predictions. And for me, I just have to give a shout-out to him because he came around on that. And there's a lot of people, a lot of national media that just have an idea of something and they're going to stick to it come hell or high water. And John Hollinger changed his tune pretty quickly. He said, you know what, I was wrong about this Jazz team. They're great, and he recognizes it. I love that about John Hollinger. Let's, uh, we got two more things here, McCade, as we're running a little bit long. So 13,000 people for round one of the playoffs. What do you think about that one? Is it too much? Is it not enough? Uh, do the Jazz have – they always have a home court advantage. Do they get even more of a home court advantage? Because they have by far the most fans in the stands for at least round one. Yep, no, that's an extra seat that I can buy, so I enjoy it. Um, I like to think I'm pretty educated and pretty well-read and pretty up-to-date on the science and all this with COVID and blah, 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 blah. I don't even know how to feel about this. So I'm just going to trust people higher up and smarter and more aware than I am, and we'll just roll with it. So not too strongly opinionated, but if people think it's safe, then let's roll with it and see how it goes. As for a Jazz home court advantage, it doesn't hurt. We'll see how much it helps, um, especially depending on their opponent, because California is still pretty locked down, so it might be a big advantage over the Lakers or Warriors. I've been to, I think, four or five games this year. I know you've been to one. We went to the Kings game earlier this season. And i got to tell you, with uh, I think they're bumping it up from about 6,700 to this 13,000. When I was at the Rockets game with 6,700 6, people, it's a lot louder than it seems like it should be with that amount of people. Yes, they are pumping in a little bit of crowd noise, but I think you get up to 13,000, you get the playoff environment, you've got a lot of people that are going to be coming in that haven't been to a game this year. The playoff excitement in Utah always picks up. This is a community that loves their jazz, but especially come playoff time, they they love their jazz. I think this does give them a significant advantage and not necessarily so much because they have the 13,000 in the in the stands but because just the other teams don't other teams don't have that 
you know, crowd can take over a game situation in their own arenas. And so I think that's what makes the difference, is the Jazz are probably better off on the road than other teams are coming into Salt Lake, if that makes sense. Yep. So, as I said, it'll be fun to play out, and I'm excited to get some playoff games and hopefully see some Jazz wins. And theoretically, if you're sitting here at mid-May with 13,000, hopefully, theoretically, knock on wood, everything goes well, and we can be full capacity by July when the Jazz hosts the trophy at Vivian Smart Home Arena. Then real quick, McCade, to wrap this one up, I wanted to add a This Day in Jazz History segment. And May 19th, it's hard to find This Day in Jazz History. I had to go (laughs) all the way back to 1997 because unless you're playing in the conference finals, you're probably not active on May 19th. Obviously, this year's an aberration. But this is a series that some Jazz fans might remember. Game one of the 1997 Western Conference Finals Jazz Rockets. Jazz win this game 101-86. Anything from this series stand out to you, McCade? Uh, I remember they played five or six games, and I remember at this point in time during game one, everyone was thinking, oh, the Jazz have never made the final. Are they actually going to do it this year? So, I mean, getting off to one start was probably a good thing. I kind of figured you would say of things you remembered in the series. I thought you'd talk about the shot. Absolutely. You know, this is a series that John Stockton did get the Jazz over the hump and into the finals with a great play and a great screen by Carl Malone. So this game won. The uh, Rockets end up losing 101-86. Hakeem Olajuwon just didn't get a whole lot of support. Olajuwon went for 30-13. and 13. Charles Barkley held the 12 points. I think this was the game where Charles Barkley claimed he tried to separate a, a rib with John Stockton. Isn't, isn't that right? Or was that game Probably. two? I'd have to look into it to be sure. But it, it was this series. Uh, Clyde Drexler limited to 13 points for this Rockets team. They didn't get very much off of the bench. As for the Jazz, Carl Malone leads them in scoring, as you would probably expect. Goes for 21-13. and 13. Hornacek scores 19, Stockton with a double-double as well, 16 points, 13 assists, you know, just a, a classic John Stockton game. If you asked me to predict a stat line for John Stockton, I'd probably say 15 and 13. So 16 and 13, exactly what I'm looking for from that Stockton. Shandon Anderson, he was a guy I loved coming off the bench. He scored 11 points for the Jazz in this game. And, yeah, this was the the start of probably – the most exciting jazz playoff series of my life up until that point. Hopefully that changes here in the next few months, um, but that was a good one, and go back and watch that one if the Jazz lose early in the playoffs. Where can they find you on Twitter? You can find me at McCadep8, that's M-C-C-A-D-E-P-8. Um, shout out, I got a Zach Lofall the other day, so that was fun. So we're making a big time now. I saw you got a Zach follow, and then you got a Rachel Nichols retweet. Always. So that's a story for another day. <laughs> McKay, I do have to give you a shout because I think that too many people are afraid to do this. When you got called out and you were mistaken on that one, you know what you did? You apologized. You said, hey, my bad, and you deleted the, the tweet. And too many people dig in on stuff like that and act like it's the end of the world. If more of us could just get over whatever the hell they we think we've been wronged by, I think this world would be a better place. But hey, that's my TED Talk for today. Thanks for joining us. You can find me at bpriest24. That's at B-P-R-E-E-C-E-24. You can find Home Court Press at homecourt underscore press. Well, playoffs right around the corner. Uh, tomorrow morning, I'm going to be putting out one more show before the playoffs get started. We've got Dan Olson from The Hive is going to be joining me, and we'll be talking about the 
play-in games from tonight on Wednesday in the Western Conference and just discussing who we would most like to see the Jazz face based on the results from tonight's game. So be sure to tune into that. That'll be out tomorrow morning. And yeah. last thing, McKay, do you want to send us out? Take note. Hey, yeah. take a quick look at Snyder. Now take a quick look at Spider. Since so wait, yeah, I've been a rider. Utah Jazz keep getting higher. Damn, all I can say now is whoa. Royce with the D, Royce with the O. One thing Jazz Nation gotta know. Clarkson's nickname is Mode. Even on the road, four more threes from Jiggling Joe. My breath stopped with Donovan gone. But Ingles came out looking like LeBron. Like, damn, Conley with the Midas touch. Bogey drops 30. Yeah, that's clutch. Utah Jazz is doing their thing. My all-star vote, hashtag Niang. I do not like the Lakers, I just like D-Favors Utah Jazz, they rock my socks, go bear, I love you and I love all your blocks Are we surprised? This is a year we collect our prize 2021 Utah Jazz champs, heard it here first, now blast this jam like that It's true, Utah Jazz is better than you Tapa tapa keg is the Igabomb crew, just one by 30 What you gonna do like that? It's true, Utah Jazz is better than you Tapa tapa keg is the Igabomb crew, just one by 30 What you gonna do like it's true, Utah Jazz is better than you. Tapa tapa keg is the Igabom crew, just one by thirty. What you gonna do, like? It's true, Utah Jazz is better than you. Tapa tapa keg is the Igabom crew, just one by thirty. Hold up, hold up. Coming wrong, strong. Mitchell.